Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. This, uh, uh, you know, of all the stories, of all the things that are going on in the city, this is one of the just head scratchers from yesterday. You, you've heard about it by now if you've been paying any attention today or if you've been around any kind of news outlet. There was a community meeting or there was supposed to be a community meeting last night in the North End in Ward 2 to have a talk about the Hats Project, the tiny homes. Well, things went awry before the meeting could even get started, apparently. And before things got going, it was canceled. We're bringing in John Best. He is publisher of the Bay Observer. Joins me now. John, how are you today? Doing well. It's been an interesting day, Scott. Uh, Yeah, and you know what? Over the last week, I think we can come to one conclusion. This city does not know how to run a public meeting. That's for sure. Uh, I mean, I guess... I, I can recall uh, a thought running through my mind when they announced that there was going to be a second meeting. Uh, and I think I even said to someone, why? Uh, the first meeting made it abundantly clear that the second meeting was likely to end up uh, with just uh, the same kind of uh, pushback from the community. And I guess they thought uh, that by bringing the hats people in, they could explain the whole concept a little further. And uh, they, they tried to dampen down the, uh, the, the ability of the public to give them their honest feedback by doing one of these standard kind of community uh, uh, walk around deals where they spend an hour walking around looking at displays on easels. And, the, and then there's a question period and a presentation and uh, the, the whole purpose is that it's a two-hour meeting where there's only about 20 minutes available for real feedback, but it, it just it didn't work. I mean, well, the, that the, seems the, almost antagonizing, John, when you know that people want to come to have their say, and then you don't let them have their say. To me, it's almost worse than not letting them have their say at all. Yeah, it is. And, and it certainly backfired in this case. Um, I talked to someone who was there uh, at 630 uh, that could not get into the room. The, the meeting was to start at seven, but there were so many people lined up outside. Uh, they couldn't even, uh, at 6.30, they knew the line was so long that uh, the people further down the line weren't going to be able to get in. So, I mean, what, what you take from this is that the people that live in that neighborhood simply do not want tents. They do not want tiny shelters. They don't want any of it. And uh, they're, uh, you know, they some of them have uh, talked about how they've invested everything they have into their homes, and now across the street from their homes, there's either a tent encampment or this proposed uh, tiny shelter thing, and uh, they they just feel like uh, their investment is very much at risk, and certainly their quality of life with kids is very much at risk. The, uh, and when I mentioned right off the top that the city does not know how to do a meeting, I'm, I'm referring to this. I'm also referring to the fact that it was just about a week ago that the urban boundary meeting, hundreds of people couldn't get in. They didn't even choose a place big enough, which seemed like it was a, an obvious, but it, yeah, it's the, the fact that this meeting had to be canceled. Now they said there was violence or threats of violence and it was getting very heated, but the fact that this meeting, that it was staff or somebody who had to come out and pass word around that this meeting was being canceled. I, I, I think that it was a mistake. I think that an elected official 
should be out front to make that announcement. I, I, this to me, if you're talking about leadership, there should have been either Cameron Kretsch, the Ward 2 councillor, or the mayor should have stood up in front of the people and said, I'm sorry, because of the behaviours that we are seeing, this meet- meeting has to be cancelled. I think it was a cop-out to throw someone else up there to do this announcement. That to me is not leadership. Well, you're right, but but there was no one thrown up there. What what they did was uh, the city manager went out in the hallway, uh, didn't go out in the hallway. She was in the hallway, and she announced that the meeting was uh, canceled. Nobody went into the auditorium to tell people, and and then finally, I guess you know whether it was uh, people talking in the corridor, it, it trickled in that the meeting had been canceled and and one of the attendees got up on a chair and said, Hey, the meeting's canceled. So there was no announcement. Uh, there, there apparently was no PA system. So you couldn't even go to the principal's office to get on really? the speaker. There was no PA system because at the meeting before they brought a PA system, but it barely worked. I would have thought at the very least they would have upped the PA system thing. So it worked, it worked properly. I didn't realize having no PA system was the answer in the, oh man, it, you know, it just, it, we got to take a break here, Bob, but it just, it, it seems to me like, I don't know, almost like it didn't really, we didn't really want this to work. We didn't really want to hear anything that that that's that kind of seems like the message here john i wonder now there are people online and i know this is not an unusual or a rare position there's people online who are saying look if you disagree with the idea of tiny homes or doing something to help the homeless you are a mean-spirited hateful spiteful elitist uncaring pick your word here the fact that there are people in the North End who came out to want to voice their concerns about this, and then the meeting had to be canceled because we're told that a number of them got really angry. Are they the villains now? Are the people in the North End who attended this, are they villains in this story? Well, I talked to uh, several people that were at the meeting, uh, <laughs> uh, all women, uh, none of whom felt threatened. They, they all acknowledged that there was a disturbance at the beginning of the meeting. Um, I, I wrote a comment on this, and I, I made the point that between security guards and police, there were 20 uniformed people in that school, and uh, they couldn't shut down. Uh, uh, I think one guy was drunk. Uh, there was a couple of people, somebody pushing, and you got 20 people in uniform, and you can't get them out of there and allow the meeting to continue. I, I think the people, uh, to answer your question about whether they're villains or not, uh no, they're not. They're desperately trying to hang on to uh, their quality of life. And and I don't think, frankly, that there's a neighborhood in the city that would, would accept this. They, they might express it in a, a little less blunt terms than the North Enders do. But um, I, I don't see this working as long as we're talking about setting up uh, huts in, in people's neighborhoods and tents. Uh, whether it's in a neighborhood or whether it's in a park, I, I just don't think it's acceptable. And I think there's solutions where we can consolidate uh, all of uh, these people that are unhoused into a central location, give them services, and uh, try to actually address the problem rather than inflicting uh, encampments on several neighborhoods in the in the lower city. And, and to be honest, I think the situation has become so uh, untenable that uh, the ability to shame people and bully people into politically correct, uh, that's gone. They've, that, that, that thing has left the barn. 
uh, we're we're down to people really trying to protect the quality of life in their neighborhoods, and uh, they're they're simply not going to pay any attention to um, somebody that is maybe not living anywhere near any of this trying to tell other people how to live their lives. Mm. You know, th there, there's a second part of this story, and this is for to try and build a tiny house uh, village in that area on Strawn Street. But uh, there, there's also the encampments that are all over the city right now. And I've been part of an email chain. Uh, I don't know how I got on it, honestly, well, through the through work, but... Um, that a, a, a group that is very upset about the encampment that's been allowed to stay in Beamer Park. And that's just one of them. But one of the questions that the people have raised is, look, council, um, August the 18th, I believe it was, you passed a new protocol that says five tenths per park at the most, but only if it's 100 meters away from schools and things. And they say, your protocol doesn't allow for a single tent. If you look at it, doesn't allow for a single tent in Beamer Park. And again, that's one example. And yet nobody is coming to do anything to enforce this protocol. Is this, is this going to add more frustration if we had a very public declaration of what is going to be done and then the city takes its time to begin enforcing the things it says it's going to do? Well... First of all, I, I we we have a, a court ruling in in Kitchener that you you can't just kick people out without providing a space, and that's why I've been arguing that we need to create that space, but we need to create it uh, in a city owned or city controlled area uh, where where you can have a large a very large encampment that that would handle, if necessary, the entire 160 or whatever the number gets to be, of of unhoused people. Uh, but the enforcement has moved slowly. If you if you go to uh, Strong uh, Street, you will see that the uh, you know the Woodlands Park semi cleared out. Although there's still four or five tents left there, it appears that there's been quite an increase in the number of tents on Strong Street. So shuffling people around is not the answer. We we have to provide a place for them, and and I think as long as we fiddle around with these. Uh, you know, encampment protocols and uh, tiny uh, shelter proposals. We're really ignoring the bigger picture, which is we we need a place where we can deal with this thing on a holistic basis. And to me, that's a consolidated, large encampment away from neighborhoods and away from parks. But that has met with a lot of resistance because of the idea that, well, we don't want to shuffle people off to the outskirts of town. We don't want to move them into the industrial area or wherever else. But I mean, your point, there's a lot of people who would agree with you, but how do you do that? If you've got a half of the people say, we don't want to make them, we don't want to move them away and sort of out of sight, out of mind. But on the other hand, we don't, we can't have them where they are. I don't know what the answer becomes. Well, I, you know, I, I think it's a bit of a false, uh, argument in many senses there's uh, this is a very big city uh the, the city of hamilton owns roughly 1900 properties and they and they also have the ability to lease properties i think it's being uh, portrayed as a worst case scenario uh you know but but certainly the, the existing situation scott simply cannot continue because the, the, there isn't a neighborhood in this city that would put up with it uh, right now, the north end is being singled out because that's where the 
proposal happens to be, but you start moving it around, you're going to get uh, a similar negative reaction. I think they they really need to take a look at this on a on a more holistic basis. And to me, and and it wasn't my idea, frankly, it was a a couple of long time downtown merchants that suggested this idea of a consolidated site. Um, there is no perfect solution to this problem, but we can't have uh, dozens of neighborhoods uh, feeling like they're uh, they're under duress. They just can't do that, and you know it's going to have uh, certainly political repercussions. But we don't want to see violence, and uh, if they keep waving this red flag in front of people. Uh, we may see something that we don't want to see. Yeah, and that that you're absolutely right, and that's truly unfortunate. And the other thing, and we got to run here, John, but the other thing is it's not helping when we have more and more situations like last night where you have another shooting at a park where there's an encampment where the police say one of the people involved was living in a tent there. You know, this, this makes people skittish. It, it, you know, whether people want to say that, well, you know, you're just being mean or you're being elitist. It it makes people skittish when you keep hearing about these cases of violence at the encampments. People don't want that in their neighborhood. It's just reality. And they don't have to put up with it in my view. So it's a fascinating topic that we will be, uh, carrying on with because uh, we don't know if this meeting is going to be rescheduled. That's been unclear at this point, but uh, I'm not entirely sure the city wants to go down this path again. I, I, I would be unsurprised if this meeting never happens and it's just left as is. We'll see though. Uh, that is John Best. He is the publisher of the Bay Observer. John, always love having you on. Thanks for the time today. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You probably know that the uh, Conservative Party of Canada had their policy convention, their their political convention on the weekend, and Pierre Polyev was there, and he's riding high in the polls right now, all the stuff you probably know. Among the, they, they voted on a bunch of things, um, some, you know, all kinds of things actually they voted on for policies. Some of the things are social policies, and one of them was to limit access to transgender health care for minors. This is a very hot button issue on both sides of the border. The idea of whether someone who is underage, who's not an adult, should be, well, what what should the care be as far as um, helping them? Should they be allowed to have surgical care? Should they be allowed to have pharmaceutical care to help with this? Or should that kind of thing be put off until they are of an age when they can make that decision because they're an adult. Well, a piece in the Globe and Mail, uh, Pierre Polyev must reject the transphobic policies his party has adopted. That is the headline on it. Justin Ling is a freelance investigative journalist and writes the Bug-Eyed and Shameless newsletter. Joins us now. Justin, how are you today? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I am good. Thank you. So, why, I mean, okay, uh, Pierre Polyev and his party have this convention and this is their position and generally, uh, party leaders follow the m- policies and the situations that their party vote for. Why must he reject this? Well, I mean, th- that's not exactly true. I mean, uh, party members tend to adopt resolutions and policy statements that their leaders ignore or even reject all the time. I mean, the liberal uh, party membership, I think, has advocated for drug legalization. The party has basically said no. So you know, there's, there's lots of times when 
the membership may advance something that's just politically untenable or actually in this case unconstitutional we actually know what they're proposing here would be unconstitutional but all to say um is pierre polyev doesn't want to be campaigning on these things and and i you know people around him have told me this really directly he's actually not interested as as far as i'm being told in actually campaigning on these things and the fear from his advisors is that if he actually endorses or embraces these policies, it could legitimately stoke uh, a significant amount of hatred and vitriol against trans people. And what's more, it would be politically, I think, suicidal for a lot of, of, of moderates to go to go down this path. Um, so I think, you know, on a on a, a legal basis, on a moral basis, on a healthcare basis, um, these policies are a really, really, really bad idea. Um, but the premise of the article is is really more fundamentally in a appeal to have Pierre Polyev figure out a much more kind of thoughtful uh, and nuanced position on these matters and to, to in effect, speak to his members and, and win them over to a more sort of rational, reasoned, fact-based position on these matters. I agree with you 1,000% on the suggestion that he doesn't want to be campaigning on this. There's a lot of things that uh, that each party, all the parties, would not want to have to campaign upon. And they're, I think they're all sort of hoping this thing doesn't really come up. But is it enough or must he reject this? Or, you know, you talked about the example of, say, the liberals with the uh, legalizing all drugs. They didn't reject that. The leadership didn't reject that idea. They just sort of put it off to the side and ignore it and don't do anything with it. Would that not be enough? If Pierre Polyev says, fine, this is the motion, this is what we're said, but I'm just not even going to address that. Is that not sufficient? Listen, I think it. I think it'd be okay. Let, let's put it that way. I think it would be fine. You know, this piece is not a full-throated attack on Pierre Polyev, right? You know, these two uh, resolutions that were adopted, uh, one would ban all uh, gender-affirming care for anyone under the age of eighteen, and the other one would forbid transgender people from all sex-specific spaces. So, in effect, transgender women would be forbidden from using women's bathrooms. Uh, what's more, the policy actually redefines woman in the party platform as being someone assigned female at birth, which is quite a departure. So so you know, on, on both of these things, they are bad ideas, right? Like it, it is an intrusion into provincial regulation on health care. Um, it opens a, a, a kind of terrifying world where we're now going to be checking you know, genitalia before you can use the bathroom. Like, it, there's a whole bunch of reasons why these policies are bad to simply ignore them like I said, it would be okay. I, I think it's actually a bit of a victory. Uh, and, and it actually reflects well on Pierre Polyev and his advisors that they are looking at this, seeing that it's popular within their own party and still opting not to campaign on them or endorse them, assuming that's what he does. Because I think it shows a level of maturity and thoughtfulness uh, that that maybe he hasn't always showed as leader. Um, but you know what I'm really advocating for here is not to just sort of sit on his hands or just ignore the issue, but to actually grapple with it in, in, a, in a thoughtful way. Because the reality is, these resolutions were supported uh, because there there is an anxiety out there, right? There are parents, um, particularly parents, who are really concerned because mm. they're being told that children are getting you know life altering surgeries and being uh, you know stuffed with drugs that could permanently alter their physiology, right? 
these parents are being told that there's sort of a a a, um, a sudden onset idea of transness, or that uh, or or that children are sort of being coached into becoming trans, or that there's a threat to little girls in public washrooms. Right? All of this stuff is nonsense. You know, this is. Uh, is in some cases being pushed by hateful people, but in many cases, it, it, these are just wrong ideas that are being allowed to percolate. I think Pierre Polyev has a really unique opportunity here um, to sort of actually address those concerns, explain why they're incorrect, and offer some thoughtful solutions on how to to make sure that we can be confident, right, that this healthcare that's being provided is, um, you know, above board, that there is kind of visibility and transparency and understanding in the public and education in the public about how this stuff works. So we can actually address those anxieties instead of just putting them to one side and ignoring them. And at the same time, you know, we just saw the poll. I know you would have seen this too. The poll that came out a week or so ago asking, you know, should parents be told if their children want to change pronouns? Now that's sort of at the very surface of this whole thing, but an overwhelming majority of the country of all political stripes say, yes, we, we, this is the kind of thing that parents should know about. Now, again, that's, that's the very sort of, I don't know one part of it, but you look at this and I, and I wonder politically if someone looks at this and goes, clearly there is not an appetite for us to allow anything to go. Therefore, a policy like this has political legs and across the border, across the board, pardon me, is, is something that people are supportive of. Well, I think that's I think that's right. I, but I think it's a lazy politician who does that, right? I think it's a lazy politician who looks at a couple of polls on an issue that's not very well understood in the broader public, at least not right now, and opts to weaponize it regardless of the consequences. And again, I think that's exactly what Pierre Polyev is not going to do here, um, because the reality is, you know, that that poll, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with it. Um, I think it's largely based on a misapprehension, right? The reality is that parents should know their kids' gender identity. The question is whether or not the state should mandate that schools report to parents about it at the first, uh, or, you know, be absolutely legally required to report to parents about it. That's a much different problem that that raises a whole bunch of issues. You know, ditto with this question about healthcare. There's this idea out there that children, right, you know, 12, 13 year olds are getting permanent surgery. And it's just not true. And this is part of what I wanted to put in this piece Mm. in the globe is a recognition um, that surgery is incredibly uncommon before the age of 18, even pharmaceutical intervention, even even uh, you know, basically drugs that can uh, delay the onset of puberty. Um, those are very rarely given out before 14, 15, 16 years of age. Uh, and even then, it's only after you know, years of counseling and therapy and consultations with medical professionals. So I think once you start actually educating people about this stuff, they get a lot less anxious. But if you decide you want to use it as a political prop, as a tool, as a cudgel, right, you can absolutely weaponize those anxieties. And unfortunately, those anxieties are more prevalent right now amongst conservatives. But I don't think it's because of some innate hatred for transgender people uh, or some, in, in, you know, it, it, it kind of personalized distrust of them, I think it's just a lack of education. And this is why I kind of keep imploring, you know, Pierre Polyev has this really 
fantastic opportunity to do some of that education. Again, that doesn't mean he has to say, uh, I 100% endorse every single liberal policy. I 100%, you know, he can still offer thoughtful solutions that can recognize parental rights, uh, that can make sure there's better oversight of that healthcare uh, process, that can um, recognize some of the concerns uh, about uh, women, uh, the vulnerabilities of women in, in sex-specific spaces. All that can still happen, but you kind of have to start uh, by dispelling some of those myths by addressing some of these those anxieties and making sure that the policies you're pursuing don't make the matter so much mm. worse because we know from a very good body of medical science um, that uh, let's say trans healthcare is actually incredibly safe uh, it's incredibly well supported very 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 few patients regret their decisions to go their decision to undergo uh, some of these procedures and it actually corresponds to a huge improvement in patients mental health and a huge Huge decline in the risk of suicide. So if he if he decide again, I don't, I don't think he's going to. But if he decides to to weaponize those anxieties, he risks going after a a set of uh, you know healthcare procedures that are incredibly useful and helpful. And you've already seen the negative consequences of the crusade against trans people that's happened in many red states in the U.S. And I think it's really incumbent that that doesn't happen here. Yeah, we got to run. I wish we were way over time. I wish we had more time to talk about this. I mean, one of the real challenges, of course, is that most of what we hear in the debate uh, is those at both extremes, either those who say everything goes and everything should be allowed to go and those who say nothing goes, and it's rarely... Uh, a discussion in the middle. But um, as I say, that's that'll have to be a talk for another day. Uh, Justin Ling, really appreciate the time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You probably heard in the last few days about the one of the stars of that 70s show that was on TV years ago, Danny Masterson, who was convicted some time ago of raping two women. And last week he was sentenced to 30 years to life in the States, 30 years to life, which Honestly, I think that an awful lot of people said, I got no problem with that. You do that, you should be going away for a very long time. And I don't think that too many people other than Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis, who are furiously backpedaling after writing a letter endorsing their old friend, which, you know, it's a complicated situation, but probably not the wisest move under the circumstances. Uh, I don't think anyone else is looking at this saying, you know, I think that we should give rapists a lot less time in jail. We should make it a lot less punitive. I really believe that a lot of people hear this and they say, good, good. Well, let me um, give you a few other examples, but they're not in the States. They're here in Canada. And uh, there was a case in Calgary in the last little while. A six-month-old baby girl had her head smashed into a wall. She was killed. Uh, the person who did this, the crown is seeking a jail sentence of 10 years. Defense lawyers want eight years. All right. 10 years for killing a baby. If they get what they want, 30 years for two rapes, not saying the 30 years is too heavy. I'm saying, what about the other one? Uh, in Saskatchewan, eight year sentence for a woman who repeatedly threw her two year old against a wall, causing her death. Uh, they're uh, six and a half years for assaulting twin babies and killing one of them. Eight years for allowing a baby to die of burns. In Quebec, not long ago, a Quebec judge gave a 20-month suspended sentence for a man who 
raped his girlfriend. We go on. Uh, uh, pushing a senior citizen onto active rail tracks, 22 months. Um, just going through this list here. Uh, 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 where's the timing here? 12 month sentence for a rapist in Quebec. And uh, we could go on. I mean, there are lots and lots and lots of these. There's lists that have been compiled of sentencing in Canada. So question is, are the Americans just way too heavy handed in cases like this, or are we too light? Do we not sentence harshly enough? Should we be sentencing more like the Americans? I want to bring in a, a favorite of us on the show here. Jeff Manishin is, is a criminal lawyer in town. He's a former Crown attorney. He joins us now. Jeff, how are you tonight? Just great, Scott. How about you? I am well. Sorry for the very long intro. I just wanted to set things up here a little bit. But it really, when we saw the penalty for uh, the guy from that 70s show, and it was a long penalty. It was a very harsh penalty, 30 years for two rapes. It was hard not to compare what happens there and what happens here. Who's got it right? Boy, that's a tough question to answer. And, and I suppose that we have to go back and take a look at what the principles of sentencing that we have in Canada um, are set out to encompass. And the phrase that's used in the criminal code, adjust an appropriate sanction and no more than that. That's part of it. As well, our principles talk about when you have a potential maximum sentence, um, that that will give you some ideas how serious the offense is, but you save that kind of sentence for, I'll characterize it as, characterize it as the more extreme examples of the offense as well as the more extreme examples of the offender. So for us, for example, sexual assault by indictment um, is an offense that uh, would carry with it a jail sentence in, in most cases. We have a wide range, mind you. Because you may recall, Scott, we used to have the offense of rape. We had indecent assault. We had gross indecency. Those were all taken away and renamed and characterized as sexual assault as a level one, and sexual assault causing bodily harm or with a weapon is two. There's an aggravated sexual assault. We've come up with, our parliament in its wisdom came up with a potential maximum, but that's saved for the more extreme examples. So right off the hop, our maximum is less than the state's. Why do you impose a sentence that you do? Our principles talk about individual deterrence, ensure the person doesn't do it again. General deterrence, send the message out to others who might be of a like mind not to do it, because look at the consequences. And expressing society's repudiation of the conduct. What do the courts think and how the conduct won't be tolerated? Word that you don't, and rehabilitation is a component too. It has to be allowed for that the person may change. What we don't use, Scott, is the word punishment. And I would think that if one was thinking of a sentence of 30 years to life for two counts of rape, how do you come up with that number? It's because I would believe you're emphasizing punishment. And that's almost a philosophical question. It you is. You want a justice system that has as its core the overriding objective of punishment. And, and we it, don't. you're right. that Obviously, there's a punitive measure in there. Absolutely, I would say. But shouldn't there be that? I know we've essentially taken that largely away. But, you know, when you're a kid, and I know this is a, maybe a poor example, but when you're a kid and your parents are disciplining you, they are trying to change your behavior, but they're also punishing you a little bit for your bad behavior. At least that's how it used to be. I don't know if anyone still does that. And I'm not even talking about hitting. I'm just saying, you know, you get sent to your room and you might miss something that you had planned. 
It's to teach, but it's also to punish. Should we not have a punitive element in our court system, in our, in our sentencing system? That's a great example. I mean, I grew up in an era, Scott, when I went to uh, junior high school and high school where they used to have the strap. Mm, yep. Did you? Did they have it for you? Oh, I, I, uh, I once or twice had my back end meet the board of education. It was uh, called and, and in the school us, I went to. It was to. more on the hands. Yep. It was a leather strap. I somehow managed to avoid uh, that form of sanction. But there were those who would say, "Well, that's punishment, and that's appropriate." Do we still do that now? It's still punishment. And you might say, "How do you show somebody that what they've done is wrong? Let's punish them to teach them how to change their behavior." Well, why don't you punish that way today? You might say because it's, it's really, um, it's overly harsh. It's too much punishment. And as well, it doesn't give you any real assurance that the punishment is going to lead to a change in behavior. It might, it may not. Does it send the message out to others, do this and you'll get severely punished? Because remember, that's the 30 years to life for two, two rapes from, I think, 22 years ago. 30 years to life is severe punishment, in my view. Agreed. And I, I don't mean to diminish the offenses at all, because they're very serious. And in Canada, even for our first offense, you'd get a significant penitentiary sentence for those two. And frankly, to stay with some of your examples, if the sentence was too low, the Crown has the right to appeal the sentence, and appellate courts may well reverse it. We've seen from our appellate courts decisions talking about the need for trial courts to get tougher on certain offenses, including child sexual abuse and other offenses. Okay, but But it gets back, your example raises the issue of, What's punishment? Why punish? What's too much punishment? I just, I believe that if you were, and I don't believe that Canadians as a rule are bloodthirsty people. I really don't. But I think if you were to poll people and say, should there be a punishable, a punitive element to sentencing for violent crimes, I would bet you that the poll, and I have nothing to base this on, would be minimum 80% of Canadians would say, yes, there should be an element, not not hanging someone in the town square and beating them and not cutting off hands like in some countries, but a sentence that was so harsh that it would be in some ways punitive. I think that would be a very widely held view. I think, Scott, we can take the terminology and shift it about two degrees and still get there. Because frankly, when longer sentences are imposed, They certainly can have that punitive effect, but the way the courts characterize it is expressing society's repudiation for the conduct to show that we simply will not tolerate it. So that's where, as recently as a few years ago, the Supreme Court of Canada commented in a case called Friesen for a whole range of sexual assault offenses involving children that the courts, the trial courts, have not been tough enough. And Mr. Justice Moldaver, who was then on the court, had given decisions at the Ontario Court of Appeal level calling for higher sentences. He did it in 2001. It didn't seem to have a lot of effect. 2011 still needed more effect. He said it with the Supreme Court. And since this case of Friesen, you have seen higher sentences imposed by trial courts, trial judges, for sexual assault offenses involving children. I go back to a stage where a case called McVeigh came out of the Court of Appeals saying it's time to get tougher on drinking drivers. And over the years since then, the courts have gotten tougher. But, but you get into the question of how much is too tough, what's the right number. It's not a scientific kind of exercise. But, but Scott, the states have come up with numbers over the course of years where some years ago they decided they were too tough and had a, they passed a law called the Fair Sentencing Act. And then under Trump's watch, they had one called the First Step Act, where they realized they were too harsh. People were being jailed for too long for offenses that didn't really merit it. So it's, it's a kind of balance. Harper's government was passing the truth in sentencing to make things harsher. 
the states was passing the fair sentencing because they realized they were too harsh. So what's the right answer? There isn't a right answer. Well, and you and I, I believe, have talked about this before, but even in recent years, Canada, there was a, a, a case that, overruled or, or said that you can't be sentenced consecutively for uh, life consecutive life sentences. You, if you kill two people at the same time or in the same event, you can't be get given 25 years to be followed by 25 years. It's just one thing. And a lot of people have said, well, that basically says you get a freebie, which is coarse and crass, but that's the view that if, if, if I only can get the maximum of this, I've pretty much got an open season to do whatever the heck else I want because it can't add anything to it. And yet, and you're right, Scott, that was the case I was thinking of that, that I thought we would talk about in the course of uh, tonight's call, is uh, it's life imprisonment. It's not 25. It's life imprisonment. You can't get consecutive lives because you only have one life. Can you get consecutive 25-year parole ineligibility periods to make it 50 or make it 75? Or would you say, look, it's no parole for twenty, you know, for at least twenty-five, and we know that the likelihood of the parole board letting you somebody out at thirty or thirty-five anyway with multiple homicides is essentially none. But the Supreme Court of Canada said our justice system allows for some possibility, even if it's faint, for people to be able to change. We don't have, as they do in the states, life without eligibility for parole, and they have it, Scott, for a wide range of offenses, and they'll have it for young people. Brian Stevenson, an outstanding civil rights and constitutional lawyer in the States, who I heard speak and who wrote a wonderful book called, I think it was called Just Mercy or Beyond Mercy, he challenged uh, the, the, the fact that the States had a, a law that could let young people, 16-year-olds, get life no parole for offenses short of murder as cruel and unusual punishment, and he succeeded in getting that declared unconstitutional. But they're passing them, and we see some horrifically long sentences in the States. So just as you've listed a litany of cases where it could be that judges impose sentences that were too short and could well have been longer, and we don't know all the facts, we'd have to say what are the principles of sentencing apply. Some of them might have been light and might have been appealed, who knows. The state has gone the reverse and has imposed sentences frequently that are way too long. So if I list off a bunch of these Canadian ones, though, that are coming across seemingly anyway as too light, does that suggest that our judges are of the opinion that they have been told or they believe they've been told that they should be erring on the side of lighter rather than heavier? No, I wouldn't say that, and it's a really good question. What you want to do in, in any case where the judge is going to have to consider the appropriateness of sentence, you want to look at the individual circumstances of the offense, the individual circumstances of the offender. Some cases, Scott, and child abuse cases can be difficult to prosecute. They can be hard to prove. I know because I've been involved in some. You'll recall Charles Smith, of course, the disgraced pediatric pathologist, and people were convicted based on his expert yes, testimony. Yes, yes, yeah, okay, remember that. So child abuse cases can be vigorously fought. If somebody is prepared to plead guilty and accept that responsibility and not fight it, you do have to recognize that and give them some break on sentence. The, the judge will take a look at what other sentences have been imposed in similar cases for similar offenders, realizing every case is different. As I had a judge say not long ago, it's kind of each one is sort of custom-made for the individual. So it's not a matter of judges saying we have to be more lenient. They're going to be considering all the circumstances, and in part it will be what sentences have been imposed for similar kinds of facts and for similar offenders. And there's never going to be an exact match. Okay. And as well, remember that if a, sentence is, you know, a given sentence is too low, the Crown has the right to appeal. And there are cases that have gone to the Court of Appeals in various provinces and even the Supreme Court of Canada. There was one called Lacasse not that long ago in Quebec, 
in which I think it was a motor vehicle for t- drinking, driving, causing death, and the judge gave a sentence that was significantly longer than one might have expected. And the Court of Appeal felt, no, you know, that's a little too long, it should be reduced. The Supreme Court of Canada upheld it. And so the trial judge can make that call based on local knowledge of the local circumstances and need. So that was one in which actually, Scott, it went the reverse. Mm. Supreme Court of Canada was encouraging, encouraging judges that if they felt that in a given case, given the community and given the circumstances, it called for a longer sentence than maybe the other trend of cases might say, that's an example of one where the judge could do that and be upheld. So I think the, the key word I'd probably give on sentencing more than any other is balance, that it's not as simple as let's just punish the most and everybody will be happy. Our sentencing system does not work that way. It's much more nuanced. It involves individual circumstances, strength or weakness of the case. What do the other trend of authorities say within Ontario, for example, appellate courts, other provinces' appellate courts? Try and factor in all those different features. The individual's potential for rehabilitation has to be considered as a fact. Is it the person's first jail sentence? The Ontario Court of Appeal not long ago said that's an important mitigating feature. You don't simply go denunciation and deterrence when it's a first jail sentence. So I've given you, Scott, some of the illustrations. You've given me a host of cases where, boy, if we took a look at each and every one of those, I wouldn't be surprised that we find several where I might say to you, boy, those are too low. Yeah, it could, it where could I might be. Say to you, no, here's why they are as low as they are. They might seem to be low, but here's how they get there. It is, uh, it's a fascinating discussion, and I think one that uh, people will be having for a long time because they hear about this case in the States, they hear about 30 years for these two rapes, and again, I don't think there's too many people who are saying, I'm outraged at 30 years. I think people are saying, good. And I think a lot of people, rightly or wrongly, in this country would say we should have more of that here. But there's uh, Jeff explaining why that is. Oh, we got to run. Jeff Manish, criminal lawyer here in town. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. A pleasure as always, Scott. Keep well. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know that there is a bigger mystery ever in history, at least one that has lingered as long as who killed JFK. There have been a million books. I mean, probably literally a million books and a million theories. It was the CIA. It was the FBI. It was the mafia. It was the secret service. It was the vice president. It was, I mean, pick, pick whoever there has been a book written about it, suggesting that that happened. Well, we bring this up today because that's obviously a long time since 1962, uh, 1963, pardon me, November 23rd, 19, November 22nd, 1963. I'll get it right. Uh, because a secret service agent, a young secret service agent who was in the protocol in the, in the procession that day, he's now 88 years old and has now come forward saying, you know, um, I've got some information here that probably changes things. I've never shared it before, but there was that theory about the magic bullet that people have heard about. I actually, that's not true. I picked up a bullet out of the president's car and he's gone on to tell a story now. Let me bring in Jason Opel. He's professor at McGill in the Department of History and Classical Studies. Uh, Jason, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. This is, uh, first of all, any dispute that this is history's greatest mystery, greatest lingering mystery right now that we would all love to actually know? Or or would we not want to know because it would ruin the mystery and end the last great mystery of our time? <laughs> That's a great question. I would say that in terms of modern history, certainly modern U.S. history, uh, JFK's assassination is by far the biggest, most sort of consequential and most talked about mystery and I'll say conspiracy theory. Yes. I'm saying conspiracy theory in the sense that there really 
have been conspiracies in history. Um, some of them are not just farcical, some of them are true. Um, and this is the biggest one in modern American history, but hardly the only conspiracy theory um, that has shaped American history. Well, no, I just yesterday was 9-11 and Twitter was just loaded with conspiracy theories about what happened in the Twin Towers. So there's another example. But just before we get into this story from this Secret Service agent, the other part of that question, would you want this ever to be solved or is it fun? And I, I mean, it's an assassination. I don't know if that's the right word, but fun that there is something out there that we don't know. It's a really, it's a great question for a philosopher, I suppose. But as an historian and as an American myself, I want to know um, the the most information and the most definitive definitive information. Um, I am fairly well on I'm not a forensics expert, but I'm I was fairly well convinced that the case had been more or less closed. That the Warren Commission that that described uh, Lee Harvey Oswald as the sole shooter uh, um, is correct and has yet to be debunked. Um, but I would I want to know. Yes, I, I think it's very important um, for all kinds of reasons to get a credible and satisfying answer to this uh, long and terrible mystery. Okay, so the story that brings up our discussion today is a guy named Paul Landis. He's 88 now. He was a Secret Service agent there. Um, and he says his story now at 88, and, and the reason he says he hasn't told this before is because he felt he did something wrong or he screwed things up or whatever, might get in trouble. But he says now that theory of the magic bullet, the one bullet that went through Kennedy's back, into the governor, John Connolly, into his back and then through into his wrist and his leg. And, you know, it was the subject of, you know, the a huge scene in the movie JFK and then much joking on Seinfeld and a million other places. He says, no, actually, I picked up a bullet out of the presidential car that had gone into the president's back. It was another bullet, obviously, that hit Connolly. This is, this is an interesting thing because it takes away the almost ludicrousness in some minds of the magic bullet theory, but it creates a whole new problem if he's true. Right. So the basic idea here is that because uh, Landis reveals, says that he picked up a bullet that was relatively intact from the president's car, as opposed to it being found later in the hospital, that there was another shot or potentially another shot fired. And if that is true, and again, this is, you know, speaking as a non-forensics expert, it is possible, plausible um, that there was another shooter because the argument is right. But then there wouldn't be enough time for Lee Harvey Oswald to fire this many shots. But I want to put a major load of caution here, which is to say that all the forensic, not all, most of the forensics experts who have been consulted prior to this have said that the quote-unquote magic bullet theory is itself likely because it's, yes, it's unusual to, it's counterintuitive to imagine a bullet doing all that, but forensics testing and munitions testing indicates that that is certainly possible, and that remains the most plausible explanation. The new information from Landis says, right, but what if there was another shot, and what if there was another shooter? Right. And, and I mean, there have been many tests. So just to your point, there have been many tests done since this to see if there could have been a fourth shot by Oswald, right. which obviously would have made this story way easier if there was a fourth bullet. It, it takes away a lot of the conjecture and the, the stuff. But they've always said, no, he never had time. So it had to be three shots from him. So, yeah. So Landis's idea here 
really, if again, if he's accurate, if his age is not affecting things, if his memory is still good, if this is all true, it really does throw a wrinkle into what's going on. If it's and being if if it's true, if it's true, and it's even possible that he's you know I for for what it's worth find him relatively credible. You know, there's a fairly long track record of people who give these kinds of confessions or just disclosures very late in life. Um, he seems very honest about the things he doesn't remember. So, I, you know, I think it's relatively credible. It's also possible, though, that the bullet he found is was a third shot and that it doesn't really change it fundamentally, um, that a, a bullet that they previously thought uh, had gone into Kennedy's back um, was ended up in the car as opposed to on the on a stretcher or found later in the hospital but it it, it raises still the possibility a credible possibility of another shot and therefore another shooter and if that is the case and it would really take some other kind of evidence in my mind to really reopen the case then all bets are off i mean if there's another shooter that would be something very different and that would really blow up the official and to this point still highly credible explanation of what occurred this point i mean it is 1963 that this happened so we're we're 60 years on right 60 yes yeah, so at this point does it matter you presumably anyone let's say there was a conspiracy all right let's mm -hmm. say there was we, we're not saying that but just playing along with this yeah probably nobody who was in that is alive or if they are they are so elderly that i don't know what the point is is there any real point in opening this case again again other than for interest so if and it's an it's an enormous if of course there is some other kind of forensic evidence or some other kind of evidence besides landis's disclosure that there was another shooter it matters enormously because the consequences of um, the end of the kennedy presidency the consequences I mean, history shifted in a dramatic way because of his death because of his assassination and we certainly everyone in the United States, but because the United States being the way it is, everyone in the world and certain people in Canada are still living with a reality um, that we have inherited in no small part from that day. So it matters enormously if there was some larger story to this. Um, to my mind, it would take some other really big bit of evidence besides Landis's account to fundamentally reopen the case. And if I might say, at the present moment in the United States, there are other conspiracy theories that are less credible, way less credible than anything related to the Kennedy assassination and far more dangerous, like that the 2020 election was stolen, for which there is zero evidence. And yet it is enormously affecting uh, the, the existence of a democracy in the United States. So right now we've got more pressing <laughs> conspiracy theories. <laughs> Um, but if there's other information that Landis has, has you know, pointed towards and more out there, um, I think we, in a larger sense, need to know about it. As a historian, the interesting part about this is that he is now an old man. He's 88 years old. There's no question. Yeah. And generally, and I don't know if there's an example where this is not the case, but generally people's memories don't get better with age and recollections don't get better or clearer over time. So if someone comes to you, forget that it's the JFK assassination and says, you know, I saw something happen years ago. 
if they are an older person, I don't want to be ageist or anything, but if they're an older person and haven't spoken about this for a long time, do you tend to believe them or are, is your antenna up going, I'm really skeptical of what's coming out? It's a great and fair point in question. Um, the antennas should always go up when anyone is bringing forth any kind of major claim. But I wouldn't necessarily say, okay, so my questions would be, is this the first time the person has ever mentioned this or thought about this? And there's evidence here that no, Landis considered saying something earlier. Um, he spoke about it apparently with another uh, Secret Service agent, the one who was known to have basically but got up Clint on the Hill. Car. Yeah, That's Clint right. Hill. Yes. He, so there's information that, in fact, Landis has been thinking about this for a long time. Like there's evidence besides his word that he was thinking about this for a long time. There is a clear motive for having not done so earlier, as you alluded to, his fear that he did something wrong. Although I don't know that he did. He was just, you know, he was trying to place. But if you're in that circumstance, you can understand. I could understand how you would second guess yourself or anything else. But sorry, carry on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, no, no. So, I mean, that's what I'm saying is I look at it as what is this the first time willy-nilly you're bringing this up and mm -hmm. the answer is no he, he clearly been thought thinking about this for a long time number two are there reasons why you would not have said this clearly earlier and there are and then thirdly the way you know kind of trauma works or intense situations there are lots of times where people's memories are highly incomplete where they kind of come to terms with it a bit later and begin to sort of remember it actually better after the initial shock has occurred, this man also spent decades trying to avoid the spotlight. He tried to get away from everything related to the Secret Service. So I find him fairly credible, but that does not mean that there was another shooter. It means that there might be another piece to the puzzle. Um, my guess is that it still fits into the original argument that... Um, you know, the bullet was simply found in a different place than it was previously, but that the old account holds. But it does raise a question. And as I say, if there's another bit of information that comes forward, if there's some other um, ability, maybe using AI, I'm not sure, to model something differently than we have in the past, then the case should be opened again. And it should be opened because, you know, democracy depends upon credible information. It depends upon the rule of fact as well as the rule of law. And you got to know the facts. I asked you before what could possibly change if you reopened it. Uh, one of the long-held theories of this was that it was a foreign government, either the Cubans or the Russians, who was behind this. That's an interesting one more than, say, the mafia. The mafia, you know, you might have a reason for wanting to do this or whatever. But if it's a foreign government and 60 years later, there was credible evidence to suggest that Castro or someone was behind this. Does it change anything politically? Or we're now 60 years on, we can't untangle the last 60 years, so therefore we carry on as we are right now, but understanding what happened. Oh, I think if there was, if there ever came to light evidence of a foreign government's involvement in this kind of incident, it would have immediate repercussions. Really? Um, Even yes, now? Even yes. now? Okay. Yes, because it, there would be a, a real kind of urgency to understand why that occurred, who ordered what, who knew what, are those persons still in any kind of authority in that country? I, I, I really would imagine so. Of course, probably the even more, uh, what shall I say, impactful or radical, uh, 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 um, dramatic theory um, is that this was an inside job because people inside the U.S. government didn't like the way Kennedy was taking foreign policy, especially about Vietnam. 
Um, so, I mean, that would be a transformative event in American history if it turns out that there was some other, if it turns out that there's a, a real reason to doubt the account that has been put forth. But I, I want to come down firmly on the side of, mm. I'm, I'm not disbelieving this man. I think he's credible. But I need, not, I, need, I need evidence. I need facts. And the facts and evidence for now still point to Lee Harvey Oswald killed John F. Kennedy. We only have a minute or so left here, but just to go back again to talk about the memory, does it change anything for you? Again, as a historian, I don't know. There's nothing that I've read in the stories about this that I've read <clears throat> that suggest anything's in writing. But if Landis had made notes back on that day or the day after, if yeah. there was handwritten recollections at that time that have been stuffed away in a box somewhere, how significantly does that change what we then think of his recollection and of, of what he's saying. Well, there are, he was interviewed by the Warren commission. Um, there are some discrepancies, but not, you know, really troubling ones in what he says now versus what he said then to my mind, what would really be, you know, earth shattering would be some new physical or forensic evidence as, as distinct from a revelation um, that would corroborate not only Lannis's claim, but also indicate that the magic bullet theory, the one uh, bullet theory is simply untenable, which again, had not yet been shown, it is not, has not been shown. If that were to be shown, uh, combined with Landis's account, it would be transformative um, for, mm. for the way Americans imagine that day and therefore they, the way Americans imagine or think about how they have inherited the past. But nothing at this point, and I keep saying 60 years, 60 years on, nothing that is just a recollection or an anecdotal witness testimony at this point is going to change anything. You, it would have to be something that, as you say, is ballistics or something else. Someone's word of mouth now is not going to do anything. In my opinion, one word of mouth, although it's a credible one and it's an important one, the man was literally standing on the the, the board yeah. right near the shot. That does not um, dethrone or, or undermine the official record. It raises a question. And if, if there's something else, then it would raise something great, something much greater than that. It's it's such a fascinating story. People should go read this thing. Again, his name is uh, is uh, Landis. What's his first name here? John, Paul. Is Paul Landis. Thank you. I was just looking it up here. Paul Landis. Uh, you can find the story online. The explanation for where the bullet came from, where he found it, where he says he found it, where he placed it, why it wasn't put into evidence. It's a really interesting story. And who knows, it uh, may make some people think that the whole thing is wrong or or maybe not. Uh, Jason Opal from McGill University. Great chat. I really appreciate you taking time to do this today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.